many of us will know, some of us may not know that Messiah is the Hebrew word for Christ, that Christ is not Jesus' last name, not Jesus Christ, Jesus Newton, okay, it's, it's not his last name, it, it gives us an identification of what he came to do. Messiah means deliverer, Messiah means redeemer, Messiah means saviour. Messiah means, we'll find out today a lot more than that, but it means that basically. You know, one of the greatest prophets has ever lived was John the Baptist. And um, in, in modern day church, I don't think John the Baptist would be that welcome as the greatest prophet that ever lived because he was a little bit idiosyncratic to say the least. However, he was the greatest prophet that ever lived because he had two specific things to tell us about the ministry of Jesus that really are very important. I'm just going to quote them to you because they're in the book of John as well. John chapter 1 verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The word behold is very important. It means to look intently. Don't take a casual glance. Look at this Jesus. He's the one that's going to take away the sin of the whole world. This was a great piece of prophecy, wasn't it? I mean, the, the, the greatest word that's ever been spoken. And then again in John chapter 1, verse 33 and 34, John says this. He says, He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've testified that this is the Son of God. So basically, John was saying that Jesus is the Son of God, but he's come to baptize with the Holy Spirit. In fact, in every gospel, that particular word from John is mentioned, that Jesus came to baptize with the Holy Spirit. The word baptism is immersion. It's a word that for some reason was never translated from the Greek, but it means immersion. It means to be totally immersed in the Spirit of God. It means totally saturated in the Spirit of God. It's not a touch. It's not even a one-time experience. It's that Jesus came, and whenever you meet with Jesus, both on your own in your own prayer time, corporately together, when Jesus is there, one of the hallmarks will be immersion in the Holy Spirit. One of the hallmarks will be the Holy Spirit wanting to impact us as the people of God and far beyond us. Because God wants us to not just uh, occasionally share about our faith or occasionally spill out onto those around us with the love of God, but He wants us to be so filled with the love of God through the Holy Spirit that we just can't help pouring that out. There's an overflow that happens. Rather than us trying to do it, there's an overflow that takes place. And Jesus came to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. In other Gospels, it said he came to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. When you think of fire, it's not something that's very passive, is it? It's, fire is not an apathetic thing. When you encounter fire, it can be tragic, it can be dangerous, it can be warming, it can be all those things, but it's certainly not something that's cold and passive and apathetic. And God was going to immerse people by the ministry of Jesus, by the service of Jesus into our lives. He was going to immerse people with fire. In Ezekiel chapter 1, he talks about God, a vision of God that the prophet had. And he saw God as fire from the waist up and fire from the waist down. 
literally was covered in fire. This was the vision that Ezekiel had. God was taking that same substance that he surrounds himself with, that same substance that makes God God, and he wanted to impart it to us in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you could see yourself with spiritual eyes in the spiritual realm, you look like fire from the waist up and fire from the waist down. That's what you look like in the spirit realm. That's what you look like to every demon. That's what you look like to every angel. And in fact, not only do you have fire from the waist up and fire from the waist down, but as we put on the whole armor of who? God. We look quite similar to our Father in the spirit realm. The only difference between us and our Father is when we open our mouths and tell everybody how unworthy we are. That's the difference. When we, when we don't say what He says, when we don't speak His word into the earth, His love into the earth, then we can be recognized as, as deficient in some way. But God doesn't want us to feel a sense of deficiency. He wants us to feel a sense of abundance in life. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundant, not a life where you're stolen from, killed, and destroyed. That is not our portion as, as the people of God. And I, I, I want to just say to you that God more and more is waking me up to this thing called grace. More and more. Waking me up to what grace actually is. I, I've got to be honest with you. Sometimes I find over the years in both my training and the time in church, I find the church lacking in grace. I find me lacking in grace. And I really believe God is speaking to us about what grace is, what our Messiah has come to do for us, what he has done for us, so that we can be gracious people to those around us. I, I really believe that's one of the things God is saying quite strongly. The world doesn't need another judge. It needs another savior. Amen. And people out there, they, 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 they need to know that God is for them. And God loves them. That is, that is the, it's not gospel light, that is gospel full. That is the gospel message. Okay, I want to go to the, this story in John 8 eventually. But first of all, just I want to look at a verse in, in chapter 7 of the book of John. So hopefully you've got your place in John 8. I told you to go there, but didn't find it myself. That's a little bit hypocritical, but we can forgive me because there's grace, okay? So <clears throat> John chapter 8. Um, we're going to look at that, the first story in that particular chapter in a moment. But I want to draw your attention to, in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 38. On the last and great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Why am I shouting that? Because Jesus did it. He cried out with a loud voice. There was a passion in his appeal to the people on this last day of the feast. There was a great passion in his appeal. He was saying, I don't want you to live with dead, dirty water in your life anymore. I want you to come to me and out of your innermost being will not only flow to give you sustenance living water, but those around you living water. Can I suggest to you the picture of living water is the Holy Spirit? The picture of living water is the love of God and the grace of God that flows. Uh, you know, that transparent lake that flows from the throne of God. That transparency, that grace, that mercy, that love that flows from the throne. That is what Jesus wanted 
people to come to him and receive that, and then from the inside of them, that flow to others. Are you with me so far? So he's desirous, the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, is desirous here to save anybody that's listening. There were people around here who didn't like Jesus, the Pharisees, but he was desirous for them to come as well and and, and receive him. There were people that were desperate for Jesus because of the lifestyles they lived and the mistakes they made, and they knew they needed a Savior. And he wanted those people. He wasn't in any way discriminating against anybody. This cry was for anybody who would come. With that in mind, let's go into John chapter 8. We'll read from verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes of the Pharisees, let me just stop there for a minute. Just, just get the picture in your mind. The scribes and the Pharisees' job is to teach people the law. Okay? So they're teaching people the law like they did every day, and people are listening. As soon as Jesus walks in, they go, by. The people go, bye, guys, we're going to listen to Jesus, because he teaches with authority. So they immediately leave the scribes and the Pharisees and they go and sit at the feet of Jesus. How annoyed would you have been if you were a scribe and a Pharisee? Look at this. These because Come on, guys. If you read the Gospels, they were quite insecure people. So immediately, this guy has come in and people are listening to him rather than listening to those that were in authority. But he was the one with authority. Interesting, isn't it? So, what happens is that they, they, all these people are sitting at the feet of Jesus. So the, then it says, verse 3, Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. When they had, when they, when, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they may have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear them. This story is an amazing story, isn't it? I just love this story. First of all, you've got these guys who aren't obeying the law because they bring a woman who's caught in adultery before Jesus. They wanted to stone this woman, but they didn't bring the man, they just brought the woman. It was a complete example of inequality, and Jesus was about to do something about it. Because he wouldn't let that stand. And they should have brought the man there, and they they should have actually not been in a situation where they're catching somebody in the act of adultery. What on earth were they doing to catch somebody in the act of adultery? I mean, they've got their ear close to the ground and their eye through the keyholes, haven't they? These people were, were not God conscious, they were sin conscious and religious conscious. Anyway, they bring this lady into Jesus' presence. And Jesus immediately just starts to distract everybody from this woman who's half naked, bleeding and beaten on the ground, and probably thinking this is the last moment of her life, and she's going to be stoned to death. And the stoning to death didn't, didn't happen quickly. It was an awful way to die. So she's expecting this to happen. And Jesus stoops down on the ground. He takes the attention off her and puts the attention on him. Isn't that amazing? And he stoops down and he writes on the ground. Let's see what happens next. 
So when they continued asking him, and raised, he raised himself up and said to them, He was without sin among you. Let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down on the ground and wrote. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let's just break this story down a little bit more. So Jesus makes the statement, if you're without sin, you can throw a stone. At that moment, the only person who could have thrown a stone was him. But instead of throwing a stone, he, he again stoops down, that's a, a definition of grace, stoops down to be where the woman is, and he writes on the ground. Have you ever wondered what he wrote on the ground? There's a lot of different theories about what he wrote on the ground, but I, I really believe he, he was deliberate in his action in writing on the ground for a specific purpose. He didn't just fancy a doodle on the ground. You know, there was a, a specific reason why he was doing this. He wrote on the ground twice. I really believe the first time he wrote on the ground, he was writing a new commandment. Remember that God, with the finger of God, wrote on the stone, wrote ten commandments. And Jesus, in John chapter 13, he says... A new commandment I give you. Does anybody know what that commandment is? It's the only actual commandment Jesus ever gave. Don't think that when we have that discourse with uh, you know, the rich young ruler about the, 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 the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, love your neighbor as yourself. That wasn't Jesus giving a new commandment. That was Jesus commentating on the commandment that was already there. The only commandment Jesus ever gave us is in the book of John, chapter 13. Should we turn there? Keep your place in John 8. John 13. This is the only commandment Jesus gave us. A new commandment I give to you. John 13 verse 34. A new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. Powerful, isn't it? In the midst of this hateful act, in the midst of potential punishment for, for lust and sin, in the midst of this hateful act and religious hatred towards this woman and towards Jesus, he's writing on the ground, just as God wrote on the, the stone, he's writing on the ground a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You see, human beings don't have the capacity to love like God loves. But if we receive the Father's love, we gain His capacity to love like He loves. Every human being wants to be loved and has a capacity to love to a certain degree. But when we receive the Father's love into our lives, when we start to know that there's a higher love, that there's a supernatural love beyond our human ability to love, when we start to receive that in our hearts, we can then, we are then able to love other people. It's not that we, I've been in so many situations where I've been frustrated with people or I've been in a situation of confrontation over the years, whether when I was a teacher or when I was in ministry, and in your mind you're thinking, I want to lamp this guy. But something inside is like, whoa, 
peace, rest, and the response is different to the one that's going through your brain. That's the supernatural love of God, isn't it? That's the supernatural love of God at work. I know it's a silly example, but, but God wants us to receive His love so much that we can love other people. How, how do we do that? Is it, is it about you know, wrapping ourselves in a duvet that, that has a picture of Jesus on and playing some nice music or taking a bath with candles and, oh, we just receive your love? No, no it, it's about every day asking the Father, for more of His love. It's about every day when you encounter the Scripture, you're encountering the love letter to you. Every day when you're in time of prayer or worship, or every day when you're just going about your business, that there's a consciousness, not of your sin, not of religiosity, but a consciousness that your Father loves you. As we develop that consciousness, we are allowing God to love us, and out of that love, we can love other people. So he wrote on the ground, I believe, this new commandment. Then there's a second thing he, he, he wrote on the ground. And it's kind of linked in to an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Jeremiah. If you've got your Bible, keep your place in John 8, but just go to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. So he wrote on the ground twice. The first time he wrote a new commandment. Remember his appeal from John 8, he's trying to get people to receive him and receive his love and receive his deliverance. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 13 to 14, it says this about the Messiah. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, what the fountain of living waters. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Let's read that again. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Have you noticed the connection in John chapter 7? He says, I'm the fountain of living waters. I've come that, that you may have this water coming out of you. And his appeal in the first commandment is, let me love you so you can love. But what happened is that these people started to walk away from the scene. Jesus, in the act of love towards the woman who committed adultery, was not just trying to save her, but trying to save even the Pharisees that it brought her before him to test him. His heart is always to save. We, we, we just started to, to grasp something about the nature of God's heart. He's always to save. He's always wanting to save. When Paul tells us what those who are mess up in sin in the community to catch them from the flames and save them from the flames, it's God's heart. God always wants to save. Always. He is a deliverer by nature. The phrase at the top of this verse, in verse 13 of Jeremiah 17, it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel. That can be translated two ways. O Lord there, that particular way of of writing Lord, is linked with the Hebrew word Adonai, which always talks about the Savior. In fact, in in, in Philippians 2, when Paul talks about Jesus humbling himself, 
on a cross and being raised to the highest place so that everybody, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus, Lord, Jesus is Lord and Adonai, that means he's Lord and Savior. So eventually everybody is going to confess that he is Savior. I prefer to do it willingly now. That he is my Savior and he's my Lord. So it's talking about the Messiah. And, and that phrase, O Lord, there can be translated Adonai the Deliverer. Or it can be translated this way as well. Yahweh, which is the personal name of God. Yahweh the Immerser. The one who comes to immerse you in his very nature. The way we are delivered is to be immersed in God's nature. And his nature, what is it saying? 1 John 4, 16. God is love. You don't just get saved when you make a decision for Christ, whenever it was. But we are continually saved as we're immersed in his love. We are continually delivered. We are continually made more and more whole as we are immersed in his love. You can have made a decision as a Christian 15 years ago. But from that point of immersion in his love to now, you may never ask to be immersed in God again. But every time we get together and worship, and it was an interesting thing Sarah said at the beginning, God doesn't need our worship. He's not, you know, well, th- when we worship him, it, it's so he can immerse us in his very nature. He's a savior. God has come this morning amongst us to save. There may be situations you're facing in life this morning God wants to be your savior. You may say, well, Jeff, I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve saving. I want to take the full consequence of that action. No, no. Jesus wants to save you even for the consequences of your actions. Well, if people don't have consequences of their actions, why will they ever change? The only thing that will transform you and I is the love of God. That's what transforms us. The love of God transforms Go back to the story for a few moments in Romans, in, in G, G, uh, John chapter 8. So he stoops down on the ground and he writes the names of those people that are walking away from him in the ground. Then he's left. When nobody's left there, he's left just with the woman on his own. And he looks into the woman's eye and she looks into his eyes <clears throat> And for the first time, she's looking at a man that doesn't want something from her, but wants to love her completely without getting anything off her. Why is she in that position? Perhaps it's because she wanted to know what it was to be loved. Maybe the man that she was in bed with had promised her all sorts of things, but soon scarpered when the Pharisees arrived. Whatever it was, for the first time, she was looking at a man, at a human being that didn't want anything from her, didn't want to manipulate, control her, put her down, subjugate her, but just to love her for who she was and save her because she was his very special daughter. That's how God feels about you and me. Very special sons, very special daughters. And eye to eye, there's this conversation that occurs between the two of them. It's a beautiful conversation. Let's just look at it for a minute. Verse 10, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? You know, why does Jesus and God generally ask such questions? He knows the answer, doesn't he? But, But why does he ask such questions? Because he wants a response from us. 
So he says, is there no one to accuse you? She could have at that moment thought in her mind, well, you know, after today, maybe there will be some people who will accuse me. And maybe I feel a bit condemned in my own heart for what I've done. I've done a terrible thing and I feel... But, but she looked into his eyes, and at that moment, because she received so much love, she gave the correct response. She looked in his eyes and says, no one, Lord. And that moment of looking into the eyes of Jesus and confessing the truth that she wasn't condemned released her from all condemnation. God wants us to agree with him that we are not condemned, but we are saved. Condemnation kills. It kills you physically. It kills you emotionally. It kills you mentally. It kills you spiritually. Condemnation means this, that you are unfit for the purpose you were created. And if we go around with the mindset that because of what we've done or not done, or because of what somebody's not done or done to us, we are in some way unfit for the purpose we're created, what happens is that we start to die on the inside. But we are not meant to die on the inside. We are meant to live with God's life on the inside. This salvation is given us... It's not just a nice thing we can celebrate occasionally. This salvation is an ongoing process. And this salvation is the most powerful, powerful force in the universe. It's the most powerful person in the universe. Salvation is God. And God is love. Neither do I condemn you, he said. (laughs) And he says this, go and leave your life of sin. You look at the the word in that in the Greek, it gives the impression that he said to her this, go and stop living your life missing the mark, but just start winning the prize instead. It wasn't, don't you sin again, I'll, I'll really, next time, you'll get it. No, he was saying, look, live a higher life. Stop missing the mark. It starts with how you view yourself in Christ Jesus. It starts with how you view his love towards you. Stop missing the mark because the one who could condemn her under the law, love triumphs and mercy triumphs over judgment. He could have done it, but he was the one who said, go. Stop missing the mark. Start winning the prize. I want to conclude the message today by just reading Several verses in the book of Romans from the Passion Translation of the Bible, which I think you may not have come across it, but it is a powerful, powerful translation. Not all of it's been translated yet. But I just want you to close your eyes because I think words paint pictures in our mind and our heart, don't they? And I want to read these scriptures to you to close the message today. And I want them to go deep into your heart. Deep into your heart. And I believe they will. This is Romans 8, 15 to 17. And you did not receive the spirit of religious duty, leading you back into the fear of never being good enough. But you received the spirit of full acceptance, unfolding you into the family of God. And you will never feel orphaned, For as he rises up within us, our spirits join him in saying the words of tender affection, beloved father. For the Holy Spirit makes God's fatherhood real to us as he whispers 
into our innermost being. You are God's beloved child. And since we are his true children, we qualify to share all his treasures. For indeed, we are heirs of God himself. And since we are joined to Christ, we also inherit that all that he is and all that he has. We will experience being co-glorified with him, provided that we accept his sufferings as our own. Let me just elaborate. You can open your eyes for a minute. Let me just elaborate on the last bit. Provided we accept his sufferings as our own. What does that mean? It means this, that he suffered for our sin. So we don't have to. I know that may be close to the mark for some of you, but it's the truth. He suffered on the cross all sickness, so we don't have to. He suffered every oppression, every mental illness that can be named on the cross, so we don't have to. He suffered so horribly for us. And it says, if, you, if we want to be glorified, if we want to live this life of letting the river of God flow from us, if we want this, we've got to start appropriating what he did in his finished work at Calvary. We've got to start saying, I believe, Jesus, that you are my Savior. I do believe that you are my healer. All the beautiful things we confessed this morning in that song, Jesus the Messiah, they're not just a song, they are true. And as we appropriate what Jesus has done, we will start to enjoy this life with him and that river of glory will start to flow from us. The Bible says the righteous are as bold as a lion. There's a boldness that comes to you and me when we realize we are 100% forgiven, 100% under no condemnation and 100% a candidate for the continual saving work of God's grace and the continual immersion in the Holy Spirit. Two more verses. Close your eyes again. Are you still with me on this? Here we go. In fact, I'll just go for one more verse because of time. Here we go. Romans 8 verse 1. So now, brothers and sisters, the case is closed. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined in life union with Jesus, the Anointed One, the Messiah. Father, I just thank you that the case is closed. And that, be, that case being closed, there is a new book open to us of immense possibility, of limitless possibilities to flow with you and to do the things that you have called us to do in this life. Father, forgive us for the times we've reopened that book that's been closed. And we've been hounded by our past mistakes and hounded by our past sins or even hounded by the things that other people have done to us. Father, we just, as you've released your forgiveness to us, we release forgiveness to all that have hurt us because we want to be part of your deliverance and your salvation. And Father, I just ask, Lord, for each precious person in this room as they go from this place, that they would freshly encounter their Messiah, their Savior in you, Jesus. And out of their innermost being would flow rivers of life-giving water to those around them. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Thank you. In this house, we are real. But we also make mistakes. And when we do, we make sure we say sorry. We give second chances to anyone. And we also have lots of fun. In this house, we definitely forgive. We also do loud. We give the best hugs. We are family. And in this house, that means we, we love. love.